You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about things Rachel and I would like to have known before we started to work with real-world evidence. So stay tuned! Real-world evidence is really used in many, many different areas. And we'll talk shortly about this. And there is so many, many different things that can go wrong. So stay tuned for this episode. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities and also all the others with access to the video on demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI and become a member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm talking with Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Very good. It's great to record this episode together. Uh, we have now worked for quite some time together and yeah, actually in different companies. And now yes. we are both together at the same company. So it's pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, but before we dive into our topic of today, maybe you can do a short introduction of yourself. So um, I kind of had an interesting path that has led me to become a biostatistician. I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare when I was younger. Seeing my parents work in healthcare, it influenced me to pursue something similar. But after I worked in a hospital and a community pharmacy, I realized that I was more interested in the research aspect of healthcare and less so much of the application of healthcare. So this journey then led me through different roles as a data manager. And then I moved to real world evidence and I did some things in SQL. I was a data extractor, and then I taught myself how to program in SAS. Um, I did a part-time master's, and that led me to my current role as a statistician. You helped yourself to, oh, you trained yourself in SAS? <laughs> so, yes, I was uh, originally a data manager, and I saw that programming really helped people uh, move around and have more yeah. Um, skill sets within the industry. So I taught myself SQL and uh, started to do some extractions um, for different databases. And then they said, oh, you know what? It would be really nice if we had some more SAS programmers. So I said, hey, I'm interested. Um, and thankfully, the uh, company I was at the, at the time um, sponsored me and I learned a little bit by myself. They sent me on a course and kind of nurtured me to become a SAS programmer. And that further inspired me to become a statistician. That's such a nice, nice story that you can, you know, that careers usually don't have this straight path. And it's, you know, you you learn along the, the way and you, yeah, the more you dive into things, the more you learn about your own interests and that's, that can lead to new areas, completely new areas. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Okay, um, so today we want to talk about things we would like to have known earlier in our career about real-world evidence. Yes. Let's start with the first topic, the index date. I yes. think that is a really interesting one, because if you come from a clinical trial setting, you may think like, well, dates are pretty easy, you know, you randomize and that's your baseline. And, you know, you can have a little bit of a discussion of whether, you know, baseline is the start of treatment or the start of random, you know, the day of randomization and things like this. But usually it's, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. Then from there on, everything is kind of clear. You know, you have how many days you had before randomization, how many days you have after randomization. And yeah, everything is also highly regulated and you have really nice quality. So, you know, exactly the day, sometimes even the time when the treatment was, was taken. However, in real world, 
we don't have that. <laughs> no, it's very different. It's one of the main challenges, I think, that, you know, you can have subjects that enter the database, they can also leave the database, and their time within the database may not even overlap at all. There could be different levels of severity of disease, and you can also have different start dates for when the drug was administered. And you could also possibly even have different days where uh, guidelines have changed or the new you know, restrictions for something or even COVID comes in, and those could also become index dates as well. So let's first go back. What actually is an index date? An index date is, I guess you could kind of mimic a randomization and say that would be your, your day that you're going to specify having a baseline period and then maybe see and follow up with them afterwards. Um, and yeah, it's challenging. So oftentimes, as uh, you'll see later, they use the term first. So it could be like the first disease date. It could be the first date that they received a drug prescription. It could be the the day that the new guidelines come in for a medical. So it could be individual dates. Yeah. So it could be that for certain patient, it is, you know, whatever, December 3rd and for another it's January 25th. But it could also be that it's kind of for all patients, the same date, because that's the date of the guideline changes. Yes, that is also a possibility. Or they could also have, so for example, if there was um, a, an issue that they found with pregnancy, then that the, they advised um, medics not to uh, give this drug. And then they see the amount of uh, women that are pregnant that take the drug before the guideline and after the guideline. Mm -hmm. So then the guideline date could be an index date as well. Yeah, yeah. Or it could be kind of start of hospitalization or things like these kind of things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very flexible. It can change quite a lot. And that is certainly a challenge um, when designing, conducting, and just being interested in real world studies. So in terms of this kind of first, if you have, you know, patients that are going in and out of the uh, registry or also, you know, the database that you're looking into. Um, what would you then look into? Would you look into the, you know, the first entry or the second entry? Or would you consider, you know, both and just, you know, highlight that you're looking into the same patient twice? How you, do you handle these kind of things? So many times is the first time they encounter the experience, whether it's a disease or a drug. Um, there are some studies where you want to do some due diligence to make sure that it's indeed that disease or in a, in a sensitivity analysis. Um, and therefore, it might be the second mention of, um, I don't know, the, the disease mm -hmm. code or the, the drug. Or if there's a titration, you might say once they're on a stable yeah. dose of the medication. So it could be, you know, not the first experience, and it could identify a different period of time uh, yeah. within the patient's yeah. record. If you have some kind of, let's say, reoccurring events, let's say you're interested in pregnancies, yeah, and you have the first, second, third, whatever pregnancy <laughs> of, a, of a woman, and then you could have kind of multiple index dates for an individual patient, and then you need to have a look into your covariance metrics to account for these kind of clusters. I see. Yes, it is possible in some studies for a patient to have multiple index states. Um, and in that case, I think they might contribute to separate rows. So it could be, you know, pregnancy one for this subject, yeah. pregnancy two for that subject, depending on how many pregnancies your cohort of women have. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty interesting, something that... Sometimes may happen, but it's more rare, I guess, in, yeah. in clinical trials. Yeah. Okay. That is the index date. Yeah. I want to point out, I think there was a lot of confusion for me when I was working with index dates in particular, because if they're longitudinal, they often don't capture from the subject's date of birth. Instead, it's kind of the, the first mention within the database. And so yeah. there is also an element that sometimes world studies use and it's called the washing period and it's kind of just that time to make sure that when they encounter it in the database it's 
most likely to be their first experience um, so they can see any outcomes based on that exposure. But I also want to mention that uh, the word first can also be kind of confusing because it's very natural in the English language to say the first thing. So for example, when I say, this is my first coffee, uh, it could be my first coffee of the day, or it could be my very first coffee ever. And so when in real world evidence studies, when the term first or new or incident or initiate is used, um, I often try to make sure that there's a time period specified for this as well. And that has helped me to alleviate a lot of silly questions that I've asked, like, uh, which first or how do I know that this is actually the first one and things like that, which kind of... So the first one within years 20 to... 22 or something like this, for example. Yeah, or it could be the first mention of disease X in the database or the first drug Y after the washing period or something. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, okay, very good. That's interesting, yeah. It shows how kind of unprecise our language sometimes is probably why we use in mathematics, not really the English language. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the next topic, and this is kind of associated with with the index date, is is exposure. And that can already be in clinical trials difficult, yeah, because you never know often if and when the drug was really taken, but at least you know that they received the drug, which is not necessarily the case in real-world evidence because very often, because these are, for example, claims databases, you can only see, uh, you know, see, see maybe the prescription, um, maybe you see that they actually kind of went to the pharmacy, but there's, yeah, all kind of different topics there. So tell us a little bit more about how do you define exposure in real-world evidence and what are kind of the, the, the common problems there? Sure. So classically, in the studies that I've done, but also just in epidemiology, you have the exposure, which is often the treatment or the mention of disease, and it, it's mostly linked to the index date in my experience. They have a similar topic. So if it's the index disease, then it's usually the index date or the the disease that is the exposure. And then we're also looking to see if that is associated to an outcome or an endpoint. So classically, you have the exposure kind of on the left, and then you've got an arrow pointing to the right, and you have the outcome there. And that's ultimately what the study is designed to do. Naturally, because in real world studies, you can kind of design your own, I guess, sandbox where you're going to be Mm -hmm. performing your analysis. You could sometimes have it go the other way as in a case control study. So you could look at uh, an outcome and then try Mm -hmm. to see and identify the exposures. Um, So you basically look backwards, yeah? which is also really kind of different thing to clinical trials where you always look forward. So here you basically look for, okay, how many patients have died? And, you know, and then, then you look backwards. Well, did they have the treatment or didn't they have the treatment? For yeah. Example? yeah. So you, you have that ability to kind of flip it on its head um, and yeah. look in reverse in yeah in real world studies, but also you can look at it, you know, the classical way of uh, finding the exposures and then um, looking yeah. for the outcomes. Yeah. So of course, if individuals with a given exposure are found to have a greater probability of developing the particular outcome, it suggests there's an association. However, if the groups have the same probability of developing the outcome, then it suggests that there may not be an, associ- uh, an associated uh, risk. Um, however, I think we still need to think about that critically within clinical trials because we've got other elements such as confounders and things like that that, that could play a role in this association between yeah. exposure yeah. and outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, that is one of the, the big challenges is um, 
you can have in, in clinical trials, you more often have, you know, the prescri- uh, precise measurement of the exposure, whereas in real-world evidence, that's much more difficult. And so and it's also not given by the protocol. Yeah. So you can have, you know, much more different dosing schemes and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the prescription intervals may not kind of really make sense if you first look into it. You know, the, the amount of drug prescribed can, can vary over time. You can have big boxes and small boxes and all kind of different things. So, um, or maybe you even kind of, you know, they, change the treatment but it's from one generic to another generic yeah so (laughs) yeah and of course the way medics operate and prescribe things can also differ from practice to practice or person to person so all those things can be influencing yeah yeah you really need to look very very closely into how data happens here and why the data was collected in the first place because that can drive your understanding of why certain data is not collected. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So tell me a little bit more about things about stratification and other areas that you can do to, you know, adjust potentially for, for confounders and how, how does it work here? Sure. So when I was a programmer, I wasn't statistically trained quite yet. Um, So a lot of these things I kind of figured out by talking to a statistician. And also then when I had done my master's, I did it part time. I had a light bulb moment and it made me realize how I could have streamlined and done my programming a bit better. For example, usually things are stratified by the um, things that occur in the baseline period. So that's Mm -hmm. why you would want to identify, for example, the baseline age. And we're not so interested in the outcome age um, because that could be be very different. And I don't know if it would really influence um, our interpretation of the results. What is is baseline age and outcome age? Well, so as a programmer, you can calculate age at any point in time. So you could calculate the age at the index date. You could calculate the age... Um, when they experience the outcome, or if they experience the outcome, you could also calculate the age that they leave the database or enter the database. And so for when I was a programmer, I was always wondering why this age was most important and none of the other ages were of interest. Um, And, you know, when I started to realize that, oh, you know, we're actually interested in the exposure outcome association that makes so, so much sense why we're really only interested or place a high focus on the exposure age and maybe none of the other opportunities yeah. where age can be calculated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what other kind of things you have, have you stepped over while, while doing the programming that you, know, you wish you would have known earlier? <laughs> sure. So I, this helped me understand an order of operations and how I liked to program my code. So I usually would start with defining the cohort, performing the different attrition steps, and then structuring the different study periods. So like the baseline, the follow-up, if they were interested in any other different windows, those would be the next step that I would take. It would only be then that the index or exposure would be created and programmed, followed by the outcomes. Um, And I know that sometimes I would create the index exposure and then do the baseline demographics. Um, But I kind of overcame a big challenge because um, there was one study where I was, we were looking at mortality. And because as you mentioned, you need to know your data and the real world evidence nature of things. Sometimes people have typos and whatnot, and you can't really go back and try to correct those mistakes. But we found that there were some death dates that had occurred before the index date as we started to program the outcomes. And so that kind of threw the entire study into a bit of a whirlwind and we had to kind of start from scratch again um, and remove the the outliers that we couldn't really account for. (laughs) So then I would program the outcomes uh, and finally I would then do the baseline characteristics, any confounders, covariates, and then the statistical analyses or output of tables after that. Actually, that's another really important point. If you work with real-world data, 
there will be always some weird patients in it. Yeah. Yes. And having some robust analysis and robust programming techniques that take account of these, you know, extreme outliers makes a lot of sense because otherwise, you know, you they can completely, you know, derail your analysis. I am once working on a, a study in bipolar disorder. Yeah. And within bipolar, you have these so-called rapid cyclers as well that, you know, that switch very fast between depression and mania. And there was this one patient that had 20,000 cycles lifetime. And you were thinking, how can that be? Yeah. And that data was actually queried and the, the physician, you know, said, yes, that is correct. But of course, if you do some kind of linear regression and most of your kind of <laughs> patients have don't know, less than 100 and then you have this one with 20,000, yeah, your linear regression can be pretty much just dominated by that individual. <laughs> yeah, 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 they can have a big influence. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think that this is a big opportunity that uh, real world studies can borrow some of the standards that programmers are um, required to follow within clinical trials um, with the creation of the SDTM and the Atom data sets and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's really good to kind of as soon yeah, check for, for these outliers for any extreme values and have a discussion whether you want to exclude them for example from the analysis yeah because this is, yeah you don't want to have you know one or two patients driving the complete analysis yes 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 and it helps you build um trust with your stakeholders so that yeah. you find those arrows first before they are delivered and exposed yes. to yes. beyond yes. your study <laughs> That's the other point. If you if you really understand kind of what are reasonable values, mm-hmm. yeah, um, that will make a big difference. Yeah, does this is that association you know expected to be positive or negative? Is this are these values to go up or down? Yeah, that helps you to avoid lots of uncomfortable discussions. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Okay, very good. Uh, let's step to the next point. Um, so again, kind of the, the English language a little bit. If, you, if we talk about specifications, what are the kind of things we should yeah, be careful about? Um, so oftentimes when you say the words prior to or before or after when you're referring to dates, these are very clear to the you know, most English speakers like, okay, just over there, or you know, after that, but um, you need to decide if you're going to include or not include the equal sign. Um, That is the question. So, you know, does it include that before or prior to date, or does it exclude that before or after date, for example? So I think when I was programming, that would often always be a question that I would (laughs) be asking, um, the statistician or the study team uh, if, if the state is included or not. So I guess to help a little bit of extra to and froing, that's that's really helpful to be sure to inc- say it's included or not. Yeah, uh, especially if the date, if these dates have kind of are incomplete. Yeah. And you have, you know, maybe just a, just a year and months in there, but not a day. Yeah. yeah. Then... <laughs> And you compare it with an event date that is complete, then you may not always know exactly whether it's before or after is more kind of during. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's always a big challenge when you've got partial dates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, another uh, word that kind of perks my ears up when I hear it um, is type of when it's referring to categories. So um it always helps to specify if the groups are mutually exclusive or if they're not mutually exclusive and you know subjects can fall into one more than one category. Because there's been times where we think groups are mutually exclusive, but then a duplicate um, 
experience or record in a patient's uh, history puts them in more than one category. In those instances, you might need to assess which record uh, is going to be categorized into these mutually exclusive groups. Is it the most recent or is it the most common? Perhaps you're going to apply some hierarchical rules to it or even pursue a data-driven approach. Yeah, yeah. And that is exactly where I very often have the problem with you need to have everything pre-specified. Because, yes, pre-specification is really, really great, but my experience is as soon as pre-specification hits the data, you need to have a second thought about it because you just can't, you know, anticipate everything that might happen in the data. Yeah. If you're more experienced, surely you can yeah, kind of take care of lots of different things that might happen. And if you, especially if you have worked, have been working with a specific data set for a longer period of time, maybe you already have some kind of standard definitions and um, kind of paradigms that you're working with all the time. But there's always, you know, this one patient that, you know, you need to take care of later. <laughs> Isn't it? Yes, yes. Hopefully it's not the same outlier before, but yes, there's always, you know, things that you have no idea how they arrived in the data set, but you need to account. And, you know, if you're going to include them, decide how they're going to be included within the structure of your analysis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a good point. What else? Treatment patterns or line of therapies are um, also a really common topic to explore. Um, however, kind of with the first one, the English language has, you know, a very broad and kind of loose term for some words such as um, dose or dosage. Uh, it doesn't really have a time period associated with it. So it could just be like the strength of one pill, but it could also be, you know, the strength that somebody takes in one day or you know, then you also have different routes of administration, which can complicate things like IVs, like how, how long of a duration does this IV last for? Yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah, and if you combine different stuff there and you have overlaps, yeah, in terms of you fill the, you know, prescription early or late, you know, these kind of things can make it really, really complex. Yes, they're, they're some of the more challenging studies that I think I've performed. But um, yeah, I think if you're going to be doing a treatment pattern or line of therapy study for your study team's sake, it would be really nice to have just a definition sheet of these different words and the definition of how you are going to interpret it and uh, implement it within the study. Yeah, yeah. One other thing there from a statistical point of view, of course, is um, if you have these errors, in your covariates, yeah, they have an influence on your analysis. And the interesting thing is they always dilute the effect. Mm -hmm. So the bigger, you can very easily see it, yeah? So, so the bigger your kind of error is in the covariate, yeah, mm -hmm. the smaller the measured effect will be. Yeah, because if you can kind of go to the extreme and the error is so big that it's completely random, then of course the you know the regression coefficient should be you know zero. So you know if you understand the variability, if you can find some kind of measurement for how much uh, error you have associated, then you can actually um, kind of at least adjust for it or get a feeling for how much you have underestimated the effect of the covariate you're looking into. And there are sometimes, you know, specific sub-studies might be helpful. Yeah. If you have some kind of gold standard somewhere, yeah, you can, you can look into these or maybe you can at least kind of assess how much variability you might add due, due to this um, error in the covariates. It's a typical thing, and you know that we rarely look into clinical trials, 
but in observational uh, data, that can be really, really important. Yes, yes, measurement error and misclassification is is a big issue. Yeah, yeah. By the way, it's also a really interesting thing when you think about PROs, because there inherently we always have measurement error, and so that's yet another topic. Yes. <laughs> Okay, what else are common pitfalls that you would step into when doing remote evidence data? Analysis? So uh, I think you alluded to it before, but know your data. Know how was the data collected? Why was it collected? And what gaps possibly exist? Some real-world data, if you're lucky, is collected for research purposes. Uh, well, quite a few others are repurposed administrative data. So it's good to know how the data got there and possibly how reliably it's collected. So for example, for reimbursement databases, some fields might get reimbursed while others do not. And uh, this could contribute to the missing data that you see. And yep. so if you're creating variables based off the parts that are not reimbursed, the likelihood of it being uh, reliable or having error in it could, could be large. Whereas if you're trying to investigate a variable that is reliably collected and is reimbursed, then you're going to have a much more higher chance of it being complete and not too many missing variables. Yeah, yeah. What else are kind of typical data issues that, that you uh, step over? Um, so I think the most common ones are uh, duplicates, um, zeros, and missing data, and then implausible values. So duplicates, I think, are just a natural phenomenon of real-world studies. You sometimes <laughs> have, for whatever reason, two rows that are identical, except for maybe an identifier of some sort. And you need to understand then, is this like the same row, or are these two different experiences that is just this recorded? And so they also sneak into and sometimes add issues like the, the categorization one we spoke about earlier. Then for missing values, sometimes a zero could also be a missing value, which is sort of weird. So it's, it's kind of important when you see a missing value or you see a place, a variable that has zeros, uh, it's, it's kind of good to think about the other side of the coin. Is it indeed missing or is it just a zero and zero means missing? Mm -hmm. um, then you can also have implausible values, things like uh, values with errors. So do the totals add up? Are there outliers? This could also be inconsistent values. So it could be different recordings of the same variable. Yeah. So it's uh, you could have out of date variables. You could have uncommon characters, you know, find their way into places they shouldn't be. Um, and then also there's formatting issues. So, you know, you've got your U.S. spelling of things and you've got a U.K. version of spelling. They also use slightly different date systems. So those are also challenging things to overcome, if, depending on the data set you're using. And then the one that threw me one time is a trend over time. So in one of the databases that I used, they started to reimburse one year for the reporting of, of diseases, because I think the government was trying to understand and try to support, let's say it was diabetes. And so we noticed that there was a real big spike in this year where this requirement to report diabetes better occurred. But then of course, that meant if our study spanned that spike period, um, then the covariates that we would capture for the comorbidity of diabetes would be completely different for the two different periods yep. of the spike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really important to look for trends over time as well. Yeah, it's coming back to the kind of how does the data happen? Yeah, exactly. If there's, you know, before it was reimbursed and thereafter it wasn't reimbursed or the other way around, yeah, of course you have these kind of, you know, triggering external events that that then you see like, wow, what, what's happening here? And then there's some kind of interesting thing in the data. And when you then, you know, show it to physicians that actually have worked in the field, they say, yes, of course, because there we had the guideline change or there, you know, we, there was this external incidence and then everybody was looking into it. And um, yeah. So yeah, these are just things to kind of look into and 
try to understand the date a little bit more because I think if I would have had this little checklist of things to go through, it would have prevented many errors from being delivered in my past. <laughs> and by the way, we will put uh, lots of this into the show notes. So uh, go back and then you you can see kind of, okay, what are all the different things you should watch out for so that you don't make the same mistakes as well. And or at least capture them before you report them. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> for someone else. Or maybe just that you, you know, set expectations. Yeah. That you say, here, don't expect this to be the same quality as we usually have with clinical trials. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had that in the past very often when, you know, so uh, stakeholders that first would, you know, work on an observational study, they would expect, you know, the same data quality as in a clinical trial. And then, How can it be that we have, don't have a, you know, agenda for some patients? Well, welcome to real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Speaking about managing expectations, let's talk a little bit about managing real world evidence projects, because that is also a little bit different. Sense and clinical trial projects. What are your thoughts about this? When I join a project, I try to keep an eye out for what I call the critical success factors. Um, these are the building blocks or milestones that determine if a project will succeed or will face some challenges. Some of these examples are, is the outcome variable available? Or do the important variables have a lot of missing data? Or If a segment will be data-driven, I know that that part is going to require a lot of focus and attention. Or if an algorithm you're designing that will feed into your results has a large impact on them. And also the study objectives. So any of these critical success factors, I try to link them to a deliverable. Uh, even if it's not requested or one of the objectives, and it can be as simple as a two-by-two -two table or a histogram, um, just something that will help facilitate stakeholder engagement and trust in the results that you're going to deliver. Yeah. So let's go through them uh, kind of step by step. So first is kind of, are these outcomes actually available? And what is the quality of these data? Um, I think this is a really, really important first step. It's what I often called kind of some kind of feasibility testing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So whether we actually can do what we anticipate to do and the data is, you know, good enough for it. So how do you tie that to some kind of deliverable, as, as you said? So it could be something like you list out all of the uh, variables of interest. Um, and I don't know, let's say that they're comorbidities, for example. Um, and you could say, you know, the, pro the proportion of patients that experience or have that reported mm -hmm. in their their history um, and then you could compare that to clinical trials or what's published in the literature to see if it's comparable uh, or if you you were noticing big gaps that you can't account for in the data set maybe maybe those medical codes aren't very well reported or they're reported at a more broad level and not so granular so yeah I think it's important to to see that um, it's also important to um, I guess, see how big your, your study population is as yes. well, yes. because uh, there's been times where we do kind of a preliminary feasibility to see how many have, how many subjects in the database have um, both a drug and a disease. But then of course, on top of that, you might uh, also do some extra data cleaning to remove those strange patients that have outliers that uh, will just really yeah. influence or you can't you, you don't know how to proceed with analyzing them or could also be then adding age restrictions or also stratifying further and then you could end up with really small numbers and then maybe that data set isn't so feasible or you want to broaden your cohort and uh, reduce some of the exclusion criteria or inclusion criteria and then yeah, that is a really important analysis. thing yeah um maybe Initially, you were thinking too strict, yeah, to saying, okay, we only want to include patients, you know, 
which have been in the database not longer than five years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you see, well, if we do that, we end up with so few patients that, you know, it, it's not feasible anymore to, to get to any conclusions. Yeah. Exactly. So can we relax that? These discussions are really, really important to have because it's it's a little bit of bias variance trade-off discussions. Yeah. How clean do you want your data to be for trading off that you have less data? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it could be attrition, it could be just like all the variables, as I mentioned, and and the missing completeness report. It could also be if you are developing a variable. There was one time I developed an algorithm that fed into the outcome for the study. And we wanted to make sure that the algorithm was reliable. So we kind of had a subset that we didn't need to do the algorithm on. And then we had a subset that we needed to apply the algorithm to. And so I just did a simple two by two kind of table where I was able to apply the algorithm and we could then view if if it was a yeah. reliable algorithm or if maybe we need to kind of think about how we're going to proceed with the algorithm. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. The other really in interesting thing is data-driven parts of your analysis. Can you double-click on this one? What does that mean for you? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure if you're coming from a clinical trial background, this might not make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> so there's uh, many times where when you're setting out to design the study before you really start analyzing things, there's aspects of the database that you might not be sure about. Like, I don't know uh, if this variable is uh, available or uh, if, you know, we can create these many categories for occupation or, you know, so sometimes you need to actually do a little bit of analysis to find out what I guess the different categories are and how many patients fall into each category. So you can see if they need to be augmented into bigger categories. Yep. So that would be maybe more a, a, of a kind of a simple data-driven approach. Um, but it could also be that finding a conclusion kind of unlocks the ability to proceed with A or the ability to proceed with option B. So you sometimes will have go, no-go decisions that depend on what happened with the analysis prior to that as well. Yeah. And that is really important to kind of set expectations around these and say, you know, here and here and here, we need to, we'll need to have, you know, to plan meetings, to kind of make decisions, discuss the data, and be sure that you can, you know, interact with your stakeholders at these time points. Yeah, it's in clinical trials, well, you, you know, it's very often a much more kind of linear process. Here, it can be become quite fuzzy and iterative. And so... Having a little bit of an agile mindset here uh, where, you know, you do something, you test it, you show it, you discuss it, you consider next steps. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And, mm -hmm. but of course that requires that you have a very close collaboration with, with your stakeholders. And if you can talk to them only every other two months, that can have a huge impact on the time. <laughs> yes. Yes, and the, and the timelines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, timelines is maybe yet another kind of project management topic. So tell me a little bit more about these, your experience with timelines. So particularly in these situations where you can have these go-no-go -no -go decisions, it can kind of impact the timelines. But um, what I usually do is as I started to get more confident with the databases that I was programming with or performing statistics on, I kind of got a feel for how long creating different aspects are. So for example, in the UK, we have a HES database, which is hospital episode statistics. Um, and this one is unique because it reports each row as a experience that one doctor has with the patient. So if a patient sees multiple doctors within their visit, there can be multiple rows that contribute to their full hospitalization. And like kind of building that takes some time. Um, of course, you can automate it if you, you would like to do that. But there's also many different ways to create it. There's not like one certain way. So it's, it, it's, it's just really challenging. Um, 
but uh, I kind of got a feel for how long that took to to create each time, um, depending on what method they were going to approach it with. And then also just understanding that, you know, it's, it's really important to kind of do the exposure and the outcome before creating the baseline variables. And so how long will it take to create those before you can deliver your first table to, to showcase your cohort? Um, so I think kind of getting to know the data um, and how long things take is a big element to being able to estimate uh, and add in the buffers that you need to, to make sure that you're able to meet your milestones of time. Yeah, adding buffer, I think, is really, really important because it's not a question if something you know weird will happen. It's just a question when it will happen. <laughs> and, um, yes. So, so uh, some things that you just haven't foreseen happening will show up. Yeah. Yes. So always plan with buffer. It's anyway a good guidance to do this um, because even in clinical trials, these kind of things happen. But but for sure in you know observational research always assumes that something will be weird something will you know not be as expected so don't don't plan you know that, that everything will be going smoothly that's planning for failure yeah there's always going to be uh, some some trend that maybe you didn't think about or include or uh, yeah or you know some dates that are wonky or sort some missing data and things that maybe not don't occur in the order that you're interested in so um yeah the buffers really help to make sure you can identify those and control for them before they become a deliverable <laughs> yeah and always kind of you know as soon as you see something coming up yes yeah, soon as you see oh this may kind of have an impact a considerable impact on, on timelines directly raise it yeah mm-hmm. That will help you to build trust with with your stakeholders, and everybody rather knows earlier than later about the shift in timelines because then you can still manage it. Yeah, exactly. They, they don't say the day before the delivery. Oh, by the way, we'll be two weeks late. That doesn't come across really nicely. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not nice for anyone involved. <laughs> Okay, what what else on the project management part that you would have liked to know sooner? Um, so I guess going back to these uh, critical success factors um, and including them as a deliverable, uh, it gives a great opportunity to communicate and document those decisions that you make. And if, you know, timelines need to flex and change a bit, this is a good um tool to come back to to highlight why extra time is needed or how things are going to change and this new analysis is now going to be included and that's going to require additional time so that really helps you to clearly communicate but also document in case this project now gets handed off to somebody else and identify areas of where analyses could be added on or scope is changing um, but also opportunities for future studies that could build off of one of the ideas that you had, maybe tweak it a little bit and improve it and see how that changes the outcome or the analysis. So I used to think the the less deliverables, um, the less things a stakeholder or the study team had to kind of pick apart. Uh, but I realized that the less deliverables, deliverables can also equate to more opportunities for a stakeholder to feel let down. Mm-hmm. So um, it's actually now I see them as a part of effective communication and to make sure that expectations are met and uh, properly communicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good opportunity for for honing in on your communication skills and get people always kind of updated. Maybe there's, you know, even some kind of rhythm you have with it so that, that people always feel uh, things are under control and, you know, they are informed that everybody is a little bit different there. And so, yeah, understand what are the needs. I think it's also really important to understand what will happen with these analysis. Yeah. Are there certain analysis that are more time critical than others? Are there certain kind of, you know, external timelines that, you know, drive things like, you know, 
an abstract timeline or a submission timeline or anything like these things that you know you can't easily move around that's really important to understand here kind of how does your study fit into the bigger picture that will help you to ask the right questions and potentially prioritize things um It's generally an important thing, but especially with real-world evidence where you have so many moving parts and you need to be a little bit more agile, um, having the bigger picture is really vital. Yes, yes. Because uh, even if you are changing your timelines and they're moving a little bit, perhaps one aspect that, I don't know, is going to be fed to an HTA submission or a regulatory agency, um, maybe that one you don't have to move the timeline for. So that's always a win as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you have this kind of bigger picture, you can, you know, also tailor your communication much better. Exactly. Thanks so much. That was an awesome discussion. Actually, it took out to be a little bit longer than I expected. <laughs> But lots of lots of gold because we talked about, you know, learnings about kind of data in real world evidence, index date, exposure, typical problems with, with language as to, you know, what is prior really means and what is, you know, at the same time or things like that, uh, how this can have an impact. Uh, we talked about a couple, a couple of common uh, pitfalls in, in terms of data and data not being available, missing, implausible uh, data, inconsistent data, all these kind of different things. And finally, we touched on um, managing these projects, yeah, that it's, um, there's much more need for communication, much more need for uh, adding buffer into the plans. And so overall, I think that gave you a lot of insight into how real world evidence projects, analysis, data are different to clinical trial analysis if you're coming from that side. Or if you're coming from the real world evidence side, you can see how much easier it is on the other side. <laughs> Okay, thanks so much, Rachel. Any any final things that you want to um, take the listener uh, away from this discussion? Uh, no, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to hearing about uh, the real world studies that others do and how we can, as, as, as a broader group proceeding down this new trail, uh, improve and make sure that patient lives um, yeah. are, are at the forefront. Thanks so much. Have a nice time and listen to the podcast next week. Bye. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. Music.